It's the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast with your host, Jill Riley. On this podcast, Jill explores what faith can look like after trauma. Hi, I'm Jill Riley. I am an author and a minister. I am also a trauma survivor and live with complex PTSD, depression, anxiety, and a dissociative disorder. My prayer is that post-traumatic faith will bring you hope and joy in your own journey. Welcome to Post-Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley, and today I am joined by by Marina Yanae Triner. It's nice to have you, Marina. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Let me tell you a little bit about Marina. Marina is a transformational coach who works with high-achieving empaths to support them in experiencing more joy and aliveness in their lives. As a trauma-informed coach, she works with clients to go deep into the roots of behavioral patterns that hold them back from experiencing life to its fullest, looking at childhood-rooted beliefs, emotions, behavioral patterns, and the unconscious to create massive transformation. Together, she uses body-based somatic approaches to support a connection back to the body, strengthen their connection with their instincts, intuition, and to flourish. That is quite the handle. Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm excited to d- dive deep into some of what all of that means. But first of all, tell us something about yourself that wasn't in the bio. I love nature. I love hiking. I love backpacking. I grew up like super unactive. I would just like want to sit and talk, which I still love to do. But now I like hiking and talking at the same time. (laughs) Where's your favorite hike? Uh, It has to be Costa Rica because it's my favorite place in the whole world. We did 24 miles in one day, which I'm never going to repeat again. Wow. Insane and broke my body and it took 18 hours. But so worth it for that, like once in a lifetime experience, it was like the tallest mountain in Costa Rica. And it was amazing. That's great. 18 hours. That's a, I don't I don't know that I can do that. <laughs> Not cut out for that. It was so um, tell us a little bit about your upbringing. You were born in the Ukraine, but grew up in Israel. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And well, I grew up half in Israel and half in San Diego, where I live now. Okay. So what was life like that you remember in Israel? Yeah, I don't remember much of Ukraine because I was two when I moved. Um, Israel was, when I was little, it was relatively peaceful. But towards the end of our time living there, you know, it started to be pretty conflictual for us. And it really depends on where you live in Israel that Um, there's conflict actually being experienced. But for us, um, my mom was a teacher and one of the, so her, the principal of her school, uh, her son actually died in a, in an attack. And that was really scary and sad. And so my parents actually left like that really pushed them to leave Israel. Uh, But other than that, I mean, I visit every year still. I miss it. It's uh, it's intense. It's very intense living there. I've also lived in Jerusalem for five years later on, and I did my master's there, and that was very intense for me. Um, Tell me what that intensity, what is that intensity about? It's just a sense of conflict that you can really feel like in the air, you know, even if you don't see anything or nothing's going on, you can really feel that. And it's very difficult, at least for me. And I, 
I remember talking to a friend about this and I told her I never felt peaceful in Jerusalem and she was born and raised there. So wherever we grow up, we just adapt and we don't even notice, you know, and she was like, oh, my goodness, that's so true. When she was in the U.S., she kind of realized. So it was really this sense of lack of peace, basically, in the air all the time. Interesting. Interesting. Well, that's um, that's pretty cool that you have that background is in the multicultural up- upbringing, especially given your work now. But we will we will come back to that. Um, so uh, you told me that in your teen years, you were involved in an abusive relationship. Um, tell me a little bit about that, would you? Yeah. So I'm very open to, you know, speaking about this. And it's something I've processed a lot. Uh, When I was 15, it was kind of like my dream to meet that, you know, dream person to be with and etc. And so um, in the community in San Diego, we had a little tight knit community of Israelis that were living here. And he was in this group of people. And so when we met, I instantly liked him and wanted to date him. And um, the relationship was abusive emotionally and sexually. So there was a lot of like gaslighting. There was a lot of don't tell anyone anything. And it's interesting to reflect on because nowadays I tell everyone everything. And I think it has to do with that because at that time I really disconnected from my family, my friends, nobody knew what was going on and only years later I kind of blocked it out of my mind and this person thankfully left and moved back to Israel and only years later did I actually realize what happened um, and talked about it with family and with friends um, Mm -hmm. went to therapy and then also actually ended up um, going to court or trying not going going to the police Um, it didn't go to court but yeah what was it that was the tipping point for you to start thinking about it again later and start to process process all of that? It was memories that would just kind of enter my mind of certain experiences, which I think I don't think it's important to share, you know, the actual abuse because, you know, this is yeah. super triggering for people. But basically certain memories of specific moments of abuse that happen. And so I would just remember and suddenly start to talk with friends about it or share. And they would say, that sounds abusive or that sounds like rape. And I was like, no, we were dating. We were in love, you know. Um, and that really helped sharing. That's why I'm like mm-hmm. so big into not keeping secrets, sharing, removing the shame from all these things, especially I know you and I were talking about like certain communities and how like people don't share in those communities or there's a lot of shame. And even though it's interesting because my parents grew up in Ukraine and they were very sort of. Um, they they had a lot of shame because they dated when they were really young and they really were in love and they kind of have to hide their relationship. And so with me, they kind of took the opposite approach, like don't hide anything, everything's okay. And they knew this person, there was still a lot of shame. And I think for a lot of trauma survivors, there's a lot of shame to share things and to talk about it openly. And so I'm a big fan of just 
sharing everything. And once you do share and even like details of things, a lot of shame goes down because yeah, other dissipates. people will say, yeah, other people will say, you know, oh, I that happened to me too, or they will just empathize with you. And so that's very powerful. So even though you were raised with your parents saying, share everything, you ended up in this relationship that really, really isolated you. What was it about, about him that, that made you want to keep that a secret? Was it the shame of, of a unhealthy relationship? I think it was more the language that he would use of like, if we break up, no one would ever love you. And I grew up in a very critical like house which I think is pretty typical for a lot of Ukrainian Jews like work harder be better nothing is enough and so my family loved me and I was very very loved as a child and I got so much attention but they it felt conditional you know I know that it wasn't but it felt like that as a child and so when I met him it felt like oh someone's gonna finally just love me like all of me But then came the condition because, of course, we always replicate what we learn as children in our later life unless we become conscious to it. And that that is how I became conscious to it. So it was like every time that he would do something that I didn't like, it basically messed with my intuition so much because I would feel this intuition like this feels weird. And I would even tell him like that felt really weird. And then he would just twist it and manipulate it for me Mm. to feel like no first of all that was fine and second of all don't talk to anyone like if we fight don't tell anyone don't tell our friends it's just gonna create like like problems drama yeah and so there was a lot of that language and a lot of conditioning around like I'm if you leave me no one will love you and that was basically my biggest fear not to be loved and to be alone and so he would always tell me that and that really like struck a chord of like I cannot leave this person but on the other yeah. hand I would always say I really want to leave him like I hate this relationship but I would say that out loud so it was like this duality yeah wow that's talk about intense that is intense and the gaslighting that goes on with that um you know is is pretty powerful and and really messes with your head totally and you know i was a kid i was 15 and he was 18 as well so there was a big gap at that age three years is a really big gap between people and so that also really affected me Yeah. Well, now you are a transformational life coach. Did you have somebody help you out in that way as you were healing from trauma? It did it did it inspire your career in some way? Did you have did you have that person in your life? Absolutely. When so my parents didn't believe in therapy. Now they do more so but in the Ukrainian culture, like it's not a thing. It's like, Oh, there's something wrong with you. So you have to go to therapy, you know? Um, yeah. So I, I never went. I really wanted to go. Like, I remember wanting to go in high school and all this was happening. But when I was 18 and I went to college, there was like free counseling. And so I ended up having the best therapist. And I'll never forget her. And I even 
like wrote her a letter at the end. I was so grateful for her. And the very first thing she told me that will always stick with me, and it's literally like the heart of my work, is this is about you getting back to your intuition. So I feel like she really got me. Like she knew that I was a very intuitive, sensitive person and that all these moments of like saying no to my intuition, saying no, 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 my intuition became a very little whisper and I just disconnected. So she she definitely got me and um, it was amazing working with her. And now I still work with a therapist who is amazing, who is a somatic therapist. So it's very different from talk therapy. It's more in the body and connecting to the body and back to your almost like animalistic instincts. And mm-hmm. I actually use this with my clients as well. So um, that was beautiful too. So talk to me a little bit about a little bit more about somatic therapy. Tell me, tell me what that looks like in a, in a meeting. Oh, it's, it's the coolest thing. I just, I I get so excited about it because even now, as I'm talking to you about these experiences in my body, I don't feel those that overwhelm those triggers, like I'm able to be very present. And even like two years ago, even though I had processed so much, and it's been so many years, I still wasn't at that point, I still could feel, you know, I'm disconnecting, I'm not really present, I'm overwhelmed. So I really, you know, I, um, I think it's definitely thanks to somatic healing. So Basically, the theory of somatic experiencing, which was founded by Peter Levine, is that when we're traumatized, there are three responses. There's freeze, fight, or flight. And they found that um, when when you flee or you fight, you let your body basically kind of harnesses all this energy when you're in a traumatic situation to Mm -hmm. deal with the situation. And when you fight or flee, you're releasing this energy. And it's very intuitive. You can think about it like if you're running or if you're fighting someone, this energy is coming out of your body. And they found that a lot of people that did this were not left with post-traumatic stress because they released this energy that we have. We are animals in that sense. And um, people that froze, which I did, and it's very common to freeze. It's actually also from the animal world. Animals play dead as well, and it it helps them survive as well. People that froze basically stayed with this frozen energy in Mm -hmm. their bodies, and that's how trauma became stored in their body. And so in talk therapy, we talk and we use the mind, but we kind of neglect the body. And for many years, I lived like neck up. Like I remember I didn't even know when I was hungry, like I had zero to my body. It was a very unsafe place because the trauma was stored there. So going, feeling my body felt very unsafe. So somatic healing is about actually connecting to your body and very slowly and gentle, you don't actually go, you know, right to the heart of the trauma. I just feel all that energy come up, but it's a very slow process of allowing yourself to feel that energy and releasing it, which could be in the form of actually like running in place. It could be imagining that you're running. It could be through something called pendulation, where you feel the constriction in one area 
and then you feel at the same time how another area of your body doesn't have the constriction and you go back and forth and then your nervous system regulates and settles. Oh, that's interesting. I've never heard that. That that's really cool. Um, the pendulation, I'd, I'd never heard that. So, um, Peter Levine's waking the tiger was one of the first books that I read about trauma and about somatic experiencing and all of that. And, um, it was really eye opening to me. It was just groundbreaking to me because I have complex PTSD and I didn't know that that's what I was doing was just freezing and just storing all that information away and locking it up tight. So, um, um, so that that idea of somatic experiencing and letting and letting things um, naturally release is is really powerful, powerful information. Isn't it? It's amazing. And it makes so much sense. It, like, I love how it makes like intuitive sense. Your body's like, oh, right. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And and when you put it in the animalistic world, you know, how, how we're created just in the amygdala and, and how we just, how we just react out of that. Um, it, it makes total sense. Yeah. I also love it because it brings so much compassion because you're mm-hmm. like, Oh, like there's no reason to judge. It's just a survival instinct. Like that's all we do is we try to survive. And yeah, that's what I was doing at the moment. So it makes so much sense. Yeah. So um, give me an example of a childhood rooted belief that can hold somebody back from from the fullness of where they need to be. Yeah, I'm thinking of my clients. So for example, if you had a relationship with your mom, where your mom was very controlling, very intense, um, you know, you had to be like perfect to, to get her love. And as kids, again, like we are so dependent on our parents for survival. And imagine if your mom didn't love you anymore, it's like life or death to a child. Mm -hmm. Um, and now obviously it's not, it's very heartbreaking if your mom doesn't love you as an adult, but it's not life or death, but because it's life or death, when you're a child, it affects you so deeply. So If that was your relationship, something that could happen is you become a people pleaser because you learn that, okay, I have to do everything this person says. I have to abandon myself, my needs. Um, You know, if I want to cry and this person doesn't like it, I'm not going to cry. I'm just going to put on a brave face because I have to survive. So you learn that this is the pattern of love and relationship. And you will be, you know, you will act as a people pleaser in pretty much like every relationship in your life. This is obviously not necessarily, but I'm just giving an example. There will be no boundaries. So whenever people want something, you'll say, yeah, yeah, of course. And so like every time you do that, you abandon yourself even more. You abandon your own needs and your own Mm -hmm. desires and who you are. And so you're basically acting. You're putting on a show in your life. And you are trying to survive because you are trying to recreate this relationship with your mom, with other people, hoping it would end differently. So one of my clients does this with friendships very often, where um, basically every friend is like their mom, very, very similar personality. And this is very common in trauma because this is the cycle of trauma, right? Right, right. You repeat the pattern. Yeah, and we just want to replicate it, hoping it would end differently, but it never does. I, I see this also like 
this is how I understand the conflict in Israel-Palestine. It's like, we keep doing the same thing every two years, literally the same, hoping it's going to change. And I think it's very, very trauma-driven because both people are traumatized. So you can see it on like the country level and the person level. And so when you have awareness, like, oh, this is where this is coming from, that's where we can start to shift. And how do you begin to unravel that? So it's, uh, that's why I love triggers. So when people are triggered or they start to notice like, oh, I'm doing this thing, like my, my friendships are not working. I actually don't even want friends obviously, because I'm so fake in my friendships, right? But I don't even want friends. And when I have a friend, it doesn't feel good. I don't feel happy in my friendships. And so, okay, well, let's look back at where is this coming from? This is coming from, uh, does this relationship remind you of any relationship you had when you were little? Ah. Is Is it your siblings? Is it your parents? Who is it? Oh, it's my mom. This makes so much sense. Okay, so can we do some inner child work, which is where it's I do it with my clients as like a meditation Mm -hmm. where we would go back to maybe a scene from that time and we give that child love. We remind her that she's loved. We remind her from our adult self that she doesn't need her mom anymore, that her mom was doing her best, but her best meant that she was very controlling And she wasn't the best for you at that point, but that's all she knew how to do. And that is very healing, the inner child work. And also, again, somatically feeling that constriction that you have in your body when you make a new friend and they're, again, controlling and going into another part of your body that feels free and going back and forth. And I'll see my clients like start to dance and move and you really see like, a release in their bodies mm. and then very often how I know kind of like the process is complete is that they will sigh like <sighs> because their their breathing gets very constricted at one point during this process I can see that you know it's it's the trauma and then all of a sudden they'll sigh and then go back to normal breath so it's really cool because you can see the freedom entering the picture like you can really see and feel it Do you, um, do you love that moment when a client makes that connective tissue in between what was in the past and how they're repeating the pattern? Like that aware, that aha moment. Do you love that? Uh, It's the best. Like I love when it happens to me. It's literally my favorite thing when I'm like, oh my God, this is why I've been doing this thing like all the time and I can't get out of it and I feel stuck. This is why. And also my clients, and they get excited too, because it's so freeing to understand like, oh, it's not how the world works, or I'm not, you know, I'm not being controlled by evil forces. It's just me repeating the same thing that I learned. It makes sense. It's it's amazing. You know, um, something else that you referred to is uh, inner child work. And I know Pia Melody does a lot with that and others do a lot with that. Um, explain, uh, explain that work, that inner child work. What is that about? Yeah. So basically, again, that little child that we were, that version of ourselves is still alive within us. And it, it kind of sounds weird, but once you go through this, you'll see that actually that child will literally start talking and you'll hear their voice, you'll hear their needs if you give it space. 
And when we are triggered, so when something happens and we get extremely angry or extremely sad, like then the next day we're like, that was kind of maybe an overreaction, but Mm -hmm. I just couldn't help it. That's kind of when your inner child is coming through. And it's really like, I'm not getting my needs met. I have a need, right? Right. Pay attention to me. Yeah, exactly. I'm here. Hello. Um, And when people get this, they're like, oh, my little child just needs compassion right now. And instead I'm being really mean. And I'm like, why did I say that? Why did I do that? Oh, my goodness. So when we do inner child work, and there's a million ways to do inner child work. But the way that I really like is meditating. So like closing your eyes and somebody guiding you and really feeling into your body feeling the sensations in your body, which is, again, comes from the somatic world where you actually feel like, what does my chest feel like, my stomach, my throat, because the actual memories don't really matter. And this is something Peter Levine talks about, like, we don't need to go into the story, we don't need to go into the horrible trauma that happened to you as a kid. But if you feel that in your body, you'll remember the sensation that you had as a child. Mm -hmm, So that's why it's kind of like more gentle almost when we use the body instead of re-traumatizing and, you know, recounting all the details of the story. And so you could go back to a situation and then almost rework it. Like you could imagine that it had a different ending or you could imagine that you received what you really wanted from your parent or the kid or the other kids or whoever was involved. And I also really love going from the child to the adult self and bringing a memory that is very empowering in your recent memory. And then from that place, you walk, you meet the child, you, and you hug them and you give them love and you play with them and you also get to experience the joy that you had as a child because a lot of times like inner child work is um, really about the sadness and kind of like healing that. But I think also as children, we all had this natural joy that we kind of forgot. And the moment you ask the child, like, let's play, like, what do you want to do? Um, it's really fun because it really awakens that playfulness in you. And this is something that I do all the time with myself. It's not like a one-time thing. I am like my phone screen is me as a little kid. And I always look at her and I always give her love. And I always remind her that I'm here for her so that she feels loved and not abandoned. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's just really beautiful. And it makes you really fall in love with yourself. I was actually telling my mom, because she was having trouble with this. I was like, okay, Here's how you can start. And this is for everyone who has trouble loving their little selves. Imagine that it was your daughter, right? And right. it's so easy because you would, or your niece or whoever, if you don't have kids. Um, it's so easy because we love little kids so much. So imagine it's a little kid that you really love and then transfer that love to you. And it's really like a way to fall in love with yourself. It's Yeah. You know, my introduction to um, inner child work was as an inpatient in a in a psych and trauma facility. And, you know, um, for people who haven't experienced that, uh, it, it sounds kind of ooey out in the 
<laughs> atmosphere, totally. abstract, but it really is about finding the root of who you are and the root of where some of your misguided beliefs and some of your, your joys and triumphs and all of those things are, are really held. And so, you, you know, my first experience with that was um, extremely traumatic because I didn't understand it and I didn't understand what was going on. And, um, but once I understood, oh, this is, we need to befriend this, you know, um, it, it made a lot more sense. It's pretty powerful work. Yeah, that's a good point that it can also be re-traumatizing. So you, that's why I think it's so important to have guidance of someone, yes. especially someone who gets the nervous system, because whenever I notice my clients being like flighty, we stop. We always stop. We ground. We go back to an image that feels really good. There's no healing from this like flightiness place. Right. Right. We always have to feel grounded to do this work, and that's something I had to learn because you know my nervous system is also like because that's how I grew up. I grew up in a very like anxious household, so I learned that my nervous system basically replicates that, and I had to learn. Oh, like I'm being in that, you know, whirlwind right now and it's not effective. So I'm just going to calm down and then I'll go back to working on whatever I'm working on. So that's something I really pay attention to in my clients and I teach them also how to pay attention to their bodies as well. Yeah, that's that's cool work. Really cool. Um, let me switch subjects uh, for a minute. Tell me about your group facilitation around the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. What, yeah, what work was, are you doing there? That was some of my favorite work. I haven't actually had a chance to do it in like two years because of COVID. And honestly, to be completely honest, I don't know if I'll go back to doing it because those programs were not trauma-informed. Um, okay. So I'm really learning that now, how much that's missing. So for about 10 years, I facilitated mainly teens, um, both Israelis and Palestinians and Palestinian citizens of Israel and Americans all in one group in dialogue. So basically, they would sit in a room in a circle, and it would be me and a co-facilitator who's Palestinian, and we would work with them on getting to know each other, on sharing their views and really it was just like a very deep almost like group therapy for them because obviously they couldn't solve the conflict but for them they've never met most of them have never met a person from quote unquote the other side and when I was growing up in Israel I I never met a Palestinian ever it was only like the news you know what I knew Mm -hmm. about from the news And so for me, when I was 16, I met Palestinians for the first time, and it was very powerful. I heard stories and narratives that I was never exposed to until that point that really changed my perspective. And it's not only about the political part of like, you know, understanding the full picture, but it's also really transformational for you as a person to say like, oh, I was told one thing my whole life, but now I see that that may have been just one narrative, you know? Is Um, it about, is it about humanizing the group and, and bringing it down to individual relationship? 
Uh, I think it's really about those individuals and, and what they do. But as a facilitator, my goal was, yes, to help them see each other as humans, definitely, because the conflict is like soldier against freedom fighter slash terrorist, whatever word you want to use. Um, so definitely humanizing and also giving them space to share and reflect and questioning a lot of things so um we we would question them a lot on everything how they were sitting what they were saying so it was really uh, eventually for me it was about their personal growth as as individuals in the group and giving them tools like meditation um like you know mindfulness these different tools that they can take into their lives Oh, that is, that is fascinating work. Um, tell me what part does faith play in your life and in the life of people that are going through transformational process? Yeah, that's a great question. I think some of my clients are religious or they believe in God. So we definitely use that. Um, so it really depends on the person. If they have that, then it's a really wonderful anchor for them to know like okay I'm going from this place to another place uh-huh. and I haven't experienced the other place yet so it's scary I don't know if I'll get there like how, what's gonna happen right and so really having that trust in something bigger than yourself whether it's God or universe or spirit like whatever it is for me I love to put on like really good music and move and just really open my heart because I am very sensitive and I feel so deeply. So I could just like literally be brought to tears by like a really good song, really divine song. And so Hmm. that can melt everything. Like I can just remember, I don't know what to call it really, but it's just the, the greatest force that there is that, There's something connecting all of us. I really believe that. And I think we're all connected. And so at the end of the day, this feeling of empathy, which is like my mission in the world is to help people open up to empathy, which is so missing in the world. And that's also Mm -hmm. what I would do with the, the teens as well. You know, it's like helping them really open their hearts, even though it's really hard and a lot of them live in really difficult situations, opening their heart to just like the humanity of all of us in the world and that we're all going through things. Every single person goes through things. And when people suffer, it doesn't matter like what caused it. it, It's the same emotion. It's the same sensation. So that's what I think. I think pain is kind of the great equalizer, isn't it? That we all, we all experience that and it doesn't have levels to it. It's that we all experience it. And so if we can have empathy for the other, have empathy for people that are also going through things, it, it helps to normalize how we see one another, I think. Absolutely. And I think we can do that unless we have that for ourselves. Like it has to start with us. Um, someone explained narcissism so well once that I um, was listening to and she said that narcissism comes from the word narc which is numb to numb and so if we numb our pain from childhood and from all of our experiences we are numb because you Mm -hmm. can't just numb to one thing and so when you're numb you can't be empathetic towards somebody else and uh, I really believe that. 
Yeah, that's a that's a great explanation. So one last question. Uh, what do you most want people to know about your journey so far through life? <sighs> what do I most want to know? I want to I want people to know that you can truly overcome anything and that everything is a journey because I sometimes too, you know, I'm guilty of thinking like, I'm just going to do this one thing and it's going to solve everything. And I think my biggest growth has been understanding that transformation. It's not about fixing yourself. It's not about like you're broken. So we're going to fix you together. Let's, let's do it. It's like actually transformation is going back to the perfection that you already have. It's already within you. There's nothing broken. And the missing pieces or the pain is going to come up your whole life. So as long as you have the tools to really work through that, that's where the magic happens. If you are helpless to the pain or the suffering or the trauma that you're experiencing, that's the difficulty. And when you work with a coach or a therapist, then you gain those tools, hopefully, to, to really survive through that. And also that everything, I really believe that everything happens for a reason and life is serving us. So if we have a certain trauma, just like I did of, you know, feeling like love is conditional or being criticized and then meeting this man that totally played into it and then repeating it over and over and over again, it's like life is telling you, hey, check this out. You can move out of this. (laughs) thing but we're going to repeat it until you learn until you stop attracting these people and I'm not I'm not saying that you know it's your fault that you're attracting these people but it's just the kindness of life to give you these people and serve you up with these very difficult people Mm -hmm. until you learn that you can do things differently right so that's that's a big one that I believe. So I, I hear you saying just accept that we're in process and accept that that is a part of life and lean into it. Yes, lean into it and get excited about it and get excited about all the aha moments, like you said, like those awarenesses and those connections and just explore yourself like a scientist. Like, mm. oh, that's oh, I love that. that I just said that or that I just did that. That's very interesting. What, what was that about? Instead of like, oh, I can't believe I did that. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, Marina, if people want to um, connect with you or learn more about your work, what's the best way for people to do that? I've got a website. It's marinayt.com. And my Instagram is marina.yt. And then in the bio, I have a link there if you want to apply to work with me. You can always message me. And I have lots of posts about all this stuff to, to learn more about it and dive on into it. Great. Well, thank you for sharing. I feel like we could talk for a lot longer. I did not run out of things to say, but I just appreciate your time and your input and your openness to sharing about your own life and helping us to understand our own a little bit more. Thank you so much, Jill. I love this conversation. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts today. You can follow Jill on social media on Facebook and Instagram, JillReilly.author, 
and Twitter, Jill Riley Author. To contact Jill, email jill at jillreilly.org.